before we get started, just a quick reminder that this Sunday, March 6th, Mike Caveney will start his Masterclass Live series with us. That means three Sundays in March you'll get to spend in the incredible company of Mike Caveney and you'll be able to interact live, ask questions and have an incredible time. What else are you going to do on Sunday? Join us at vanishinginkmagic.com slash masterclass. Now I guess it's time for that riffle shuffle you were expecting. Here we go. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Insider, brought to you, just for a change, by Vanishing Inc. My guest today is a magician, an author, a publisher, a historian and a collector. It's the amazing Mike Caveney. Mike, thank you for joining us this morning. How are you? Hey, Damon. I'm happy to be here. But what's your origin story? You've got 37 seconds. Ay, ay, ay. My origin story. I started in magic when I was nine. I joined a club called the Long Beach Mystics. When I turned 21, I joined the Magic Castle and immediately started performing there. And that has always been my laboratory where I learned to entertain normal people with uh, a magic act. And from there, have traveled around the world, oftentimes with my wife, Tina Leonard, performing acts uh, all over the place. And here I am. That, as I understand it, your magic started teensy bit before the Long Beach Mystics at Owens um, when you were a kid and you were paid in magic props. Tell us what you were doing then and what, if you remember, you picked to be paid in. So, uh, you know, when you're, back in those days when you're uh, interested in magic, you get out the Yellow Pages phone book and you look up Magic Shop and there was Owen Magic Supreme. <clears throat> and it was in Alhambra, California, which was seven and a half miles from my house. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, I can ride my bicycle. To th-. So I rode my bicycle to this place. And you walk in, and there's the most beautiful magic on earth. But I didn't know that this was not like any other magic shop. I thought all magic looked like this. Well, of course, later I discovered that no magic looks like that unless it was built at Owen Magic Supreme. Every Saturday, I would ride my bicycle to Owen and just hang around. And I remember Marvin Roy coming in and going back in the shop to look at his latest prop. I remember the day that Channing Pollock arrived to pick up his two sawing-in-half illusions that he was going to do the first double sawing with on the Hollywood Palace television show. So it was just a, a surreal place to hang around. And finally, mercifully, the owner, Les Smith, said, look, if you're just going to stand here, you know, all day, why don't you come in the shop and do something? So I I was on board for that. So he said, do you know how to polish metal? And I said, no. And he said, okay, I'll show you. And he showed me the, the coarse polishing wheel and the finished polishing wheel. So I started polishing duck pans and zombie balls and and all of the metal stuff that was made. And yes, I got paid not in cash, in apparatus, <clears throat> which you know was the same thing to me. If they had given me money, I would have handed it straight back. Sure. And I remember one of the things that I got was uh, a card and balloon that I still have uh-huh. and that I still use whenever I do a, a kid show on the rare time. And uh, it's just beautiful. It was beautiful then. It's beautiful today. It works perfectly. And the, the signed card and balloon is a really good trick. Let's move on to the Long Beach Mystics. Um, 
for the uninitiated, it was a group of magicians that really did dominate the the magic scene in California from 1955 to the to the 80s. Tell tell us about it. What was what was it like? How did it get started? And are there a couple of kind of standout memories from that period? Well, it was started in a hobby shop. A guy had a hobby shop uh, uh, named Herb Brown, and you know he sold all kinds of things for kids: model airplanes and train sets, and he had a little magic counter. And he was a smart guy, and he figured out the way to get kids involved and interested and coming back to the store was to start a club. So he'd have the model airplane club, and then he started the Long Beach Mystics for the magic thing. Well, the magic club kind of took off, and uh, it soon outgrew uh, Brownie's hobby shop and became an entity of its own. I didn't grow up in Long Beach. I grew up in Arcadia, which was about, oh, 25 miles from Long Beach. So I had heard about this club. And in fact, every year they would put on an annual show called It's Amazing, a public show. And I got a ride to Long Beach a couple of times so that I could attend that show. So here are these guys, teenagers, that were my age, but they were miles ahead of me. I mean, they were, they're wearing tails and they had, you know, girls assisting them and they had doves. And I mean, this was, I was a guy with two suitcases full of tricks that I'd gotten at Owen or built doing birthday parties. And so these guys, I thought, man, this is, this is where I want to be. But I had to wait till I had a driver's license and I could drive to the meetings down in Long Beach. So when I turned 16, that's when I joined the club. And it was, it was amazing. Um, a great bunch of guys, uh, all just like me, very serious about magic, working on their acts. And there were a number of events that were a big deal each year. We had a, a senior contest for the older members, a junior contest for the younger members. We had our annual It's Amazing show that everybody wanted to be on. And there was also the Pacific Coast Association of Magicians convention somewhere out here in, on the West Coast. <clears throat> and we would always want to go to that, and we would always want to enter the junior contest in that, and uh, hopefully we'd bring home some trophies from that. So there was always a goal to work towards. And wow. it was amazing. And, and now, when I look back at the guys, and I know I'll leave out half the guys, but uh, Stan Allen from Magic Magazine was a member, uh, Kevin James was a member, Michael Weber was a member, uh, Mark Kalen, Armando Lucero, Dana Daniels, uh, Les Arnold. Um, it was quite an amazing group of guys, uh, you know, and, and not even all of them went on to become professional magicians. There's, there's other guys who were very successful. Bill Smith is the owner of Magic Ventures, who uh, is one of the big illusion builders in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. He grew up in the Mystics. So a great group, and amazingly, they're all still my best friends 50 years later. How wonderful. You joined us at the retreat in Costa Rica where our very own Joshua Jay interviewed you. Um, Can you share the story you told Josh about the original Dante illusion that Copperfield wanted to buy? (laughs) Oh, so the story about the, the, the Dante sawing a lady in half so dante at the back in the 20s and 30s he was the biggest illusionist in the world i think and one of his big tricks that he used throughout his career was sawing a lady in half and of course his assistant was 
uh, a lady that was known as the most beautiful lady of from Australia, Miss Moyo Miller. And during the course of Moyo's career, uh, she got sawn in half over 11,000 times. All of this was amazing to me. And a guy that was a good friend of mine who lived very near to me, who was a, a great illusionist in his own right, John Daniel, he was friends uh, mainly with Dante's son, Al Jansen. And John Daniel got from Al Dante's original Sawing a Lady and a Half illusion. And many years later, I bought that illusion from John because I'm crazy for the Sawing a Lady and Half trick. In fact, I'm just about finished with a, a book on the history of that trick, which I'm just finishing uh -huh. up now. So I have down in my basement Sawing a Lady in Half. And David Copperfield would come over and see it, and he said, you've got to sell this to me. You've you got to sell this to me. And I said, David, you don't have enough money to buy this trick. And that drove him crazy <laughs> because he has enough money to buy any trick. And I said, yes, you do. You can buy any trick except this one. It drove him nuts. And he would constantly say, come on, come on. you got to sell me that Dante song. I wouldn't do it because I just loved it. And then I met Moyo Miller, Dante's original assistant, who was one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Um, back when she was on stage with Dante, she had it. Whatever that is, she had it. Charisma, the it factor. You, you know, Marilyn Monroe had it. Mm -hmm. When she walks on the screen you can't take your eyes off of she just glows and that was moyo and i became good friends with moyo and one time uh, and moyo's husband arturo montez was also an assistant for dante and he is the one that built this illusion he built this uh -huh. apparatus so they were at my house once and we went down in the basement and there's that old sewing and moyo hadn't seen it for decades and so she, it was just an Arturo, too. It's like, wow, I remember building this thing and the thousands of times we pushed this thing onto the stage. And Now, at this time, Moyo was 78 years old. And I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I said, Moyo, do you think you could still do this trick? Well, <laughs> by the, as I got the last word out of my mouth, Moyo kicked off her shoes, jumped up on this table, laid down in this box, and uh, she says, yeah, I don't think there'd be a problem. So I had a reason for asking this question. At, back then, we used to put on, uh, me and John Gaughan and Jim Steinmeier, we would produce the Los Angeles Conference on Magic History. Yes, and indeed. magic collectors and historians from all over the world would come to Los Angeles for this uh, convention. And part of it was we would recreate old illusions that haven't mm -hmm. been seen in 100 years. So I said, okay, Moyo, you're hired. We're going to do this trick at the conference. I'm going to be Dante. You're going to get in the box. And Arturo, you're going to be on the other end of the saw, just like you used to be with Dante. And we did. And I, I wasn't Dante. I was just the guy holding sure. the saw. But I, was the, I did perform the trick. But the star of the whole convention was Moyo Miller. And to see her walk out on stage again and just glowing and as beautiful as ever and do this trick that she hadn't performed in about 50 years 
uh, was unbelievable. Uh, so it was truly one of the greatest nights of my life, and um, I've written it all up in great detail in my book uh, called The Conference Illusions. And when that was over, I thought, what am I ever going to do with this trick to top what I just did with Moyo sure. at the conference? It's impossible. There's nothing I could ever do. And I called David Copperfield and said, you want this sawing? <laughs> uh, I said, it's still not for sale, but you can trade for it. Ah. And, of course, he has so much stuff in duplicates and triplicates. So uh, it was a great trade for both of us. I got some fantastic things. Uh, and David got this, this cornerstone of the golden age of magic, one of Dante's most famous illusions. And you know what? Here's the, tr the truth of it. For many, many years, it sat in my basement, and almost nobody would see it. And now it's in David Copperfield's museum, and it has a prime space in the Golden Age area, and it's, it's surrounded by Dante's posters and Dante's spirit cabinets and the costume that Moyo Miller wore in the trick and a, an old TV there playing the video of Dante and Moyo performing the trick. So it's, it's in a better place. Ah, how wonderful. Talking of the past, uh, unarguably, you're one of Magic History's finest scholars. If you had to pick just one magician from the past that you could see perform today, who would it be and why? It would be Servet Leroy and the Leroy Talma and Bosco show. Um, I, I kind of co-wrote that book with Bill Rauscher, the Survey Leroy biography. And it's, it's such an extraordinary story. And this guy was a, an amazing inventor and a great builder and a master performer uh, uh, of smaller magic and illusions. And his wife, Talma, was one of the greatest coin manipulators to ever live and don't take my word for it that's what T. Nelson Downs said and then the the mm -hmm. comic foil in the show Bosco who was was played by uh, Leon Bosco but then played by uh, Dr. Elliot and a total of nine different people played that role but it was mm -hmm. a, a, a integral part of their show that got big big laughs and between the great illusionist Leroy and the beautiful Talma and the comedy uh, Bosco. I mean, this show had everything. And you see the pictures of, of the show and you just say, I can't believe that they did this extravaganza two times a night. It's just amazing. I would love to see that. I would also love to see, and not because he was the greatest magician of all time, but because I'm so closely associated with him and because I've spent so much time researching him and I bought his entire show and wrote the book on Charles Carter, Carter the Great. Uh, I don't think he was in the league with Survey Leroy as a magician, but doggone it, this guy went around the world seven times with a giant illusion show um, and he made a lot of money and was very successful and I would love to have seen it. I don't think I would have loved it his show, but um, <laughs> I would love to have seen it. What started your fascination with old magic books? 
That's a good question because when I was a kid, I just wanted to learn uh, magic tricks and secrets and mm. build build my foundation uh, in magic. So I would just, you know, go to Joe Berg's magic shop in Hollywood and and buy Greater Magic and the Tarbell Course and, you know, whatever books I could find. <clears throat> the Fleming Book Company back in the 60s was had published the classics of magic, Our Magic and Magic with Small Apparatus and Sleight of Hand and... Um, and they were really cheap. In fact, what, by the time I came along, the prices of those books had been marked down half price. So I'd, for $3.75, I was buying these great classic books. And I was happy to get them, and I bought them and read them. And I, th I don't know if this is the reason, but at one point, I saw a first edition of Our Magic. And instead of having line drawings in it, like the Fleming edition did, it had photographs of David Devant standing on stage at St. George's Hall. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it, it just took on a whole new importance to me. Right. I could see what he was wearing, and I could see how he was standing. I could see what the stage looked like. And, and it's like, th these, these aren't pipe dream tricks that he's explaining. These are routines that there they are on stage, and that's where they did, you know, two shows a day uh, for normal people. And um, so I thought these first edition books, they seem better. So I, I think then I started to look for old magic books. I also realized that, you know, even today, there's, there's always, every month, there's new magic books, which is great. <clears throat> but what I think of people often forget is those guys a hundred years ago they were really smart and they wrote books and there are such great magic principles and magic routines and ideas buried in those old books that to ignore them is just foolish the same thing with magazines i love mm -hmm. magic magazines and i mean it takes a lot of digging and there's a lot of lousy magic that appears in magazines but there's also tricks in there that are that it, when you look at it and you say boy this could be developed into a reputation making routine and you just have to find it and put in the effort to to make it your own and uh, all of a sudden everybody thinks you're a genius when the truth is <laughs> i got this trick from sphinx magazine so there you go <laughs> And talking of, of working on tricks and digging through and finding things, when you work on a trick, you, you really work on it. And uh, I've heard you say that a trick is never finished. But what interests me is the tiny details that you tend to focus on. Little tiny, a, a beat or a sentence or a line. Why do you think those tiny details matter so much? And how can you find the bits to improve? Right. Good. Very good question. Uh, I would say, and I do love working on that, um, I, I've always said that a magic trick is like an onion. And by that I mean it's layer after layer after layer after layer. And, you know, the trick, the secret to the trick, that's the, just the first layer of this onion. And there are so many things that you can do to that method or that trick to improve it that it's it's terrible to not do those things 
sometimes those things is a line of patter, a, a little bit of misdirection, a little touch of psychology. Sometimes it's a lie that you tell to the audience and the audience doesn't know you're a liar and when they believe it in their mind it makes that trick even more amazing as they think about it later. Uh, sometimes it's a, a physical change to the apparatus. You can adjust the apparatus and make it a little more uh, deceptive. Uh, the example that I like to use is uh, the trick way back when, I think it was probably a, a, around 1974 when Terry Seabrook came to America and did his burned bill in the wallet. <clears throat> this was a revelation mm -hmm. to everybody in America. I mean, it was an old trick, but here's a guy that, that made his living doing this routine. And he sold it. You could buy Terry Seabrook's burned bill routine. Everybody bought it, including me. So I thought, okay, if I wasn't going to do this with a wallet, <clears throat> what could I do? And I decided I'm going to have this... I'm going, to, I'm going to borrow the money from the guy and I'm going to say, don't worry, I'm going to give you some collateral so you don't worry about your money. And I would give him a cigar. And if they'd given me a $20 bill, I'd say, this is a $20 cigar, so relax. If they'd given me a $100 bill, I'd say, this is a $100 cigar, so don't worry about it. And then at the end, after the money burns up, we're going to, uh, I blame him for picking the wrong envelope and I say, we're going to share the blame for this mess so in that case we have to share the collateral so i'll break the cigar in half you get half i get half. and now wait a minute and now the bill's in the cigar signed bill so i worked the, worked on this and i i made this elaborate gimmick back then i worked at johnson products so i had access to a full machine shop so i made this mm -hmm. elaborate gimmick out of brass and <clears throat> and i thought well this is it this is fantastic and then when i wrote my first book called Magic Comedy, I put my Bill and Cigar routine in there. And I was proud as I could be of it. Because, I mean, that was the big trick in my act. But I continued to work on that routine. And it changed, and it changed, and it changed. And I added everything that I just talked about. Physical changes, new gimmicks. Uh, and then, uh, three, four or five years ago, when I wrote Mike Caveney Wonders, and this is... 40 years after I first published it, I published my current version of The Bill and Cigar. And I've always said, if you read Magic Comedy and saw how my Bill and Cigar routine worked then, and then you saw it performed today, I think you would be completely fooled by it. Because that's how much it changed. And that's how many layers I added to this, this onion. Your routines tend to be, well, quite long. Have they always been? And is there a reason that you don't do short tricks? You know, um, yes, you've noticed that, haven't you? So have I. Uh, <laughs> it, and it's driving me crazy. I got, I got a call from a TV producer recently that said, hey, we'd love to have you back on the show. Have you got anything? And the answer is no, I don't, because you need something that's less than four minutes long. Um, Everything that I can squeeze into four minutes, you've already had, and my routines just tend to be long, and I would add, complicated. At the same time my books came out, the, the Mike Caveney's Wonders books that has my whole act described mm. in it, um, 
and as I was writing that book, and now even as I look through this book, this these things are really complicated. And I mean, you need for some of the routines in there, you need a woodworker, you need a metal worker, you need a machinist, you need a seamstress. And I think people read these and go, good God, I mean, this is crazy, the amount of work. And it's true. And I apologize for that, I guess. <laughs> Although, you know, I went through all the trouble to make these things. And for instance, the, the routine, the scissors through the guy's coat, where mm -hmm. all the silver wall where falls out of his coat, and then I produce a chicken. That's a very complicated routine to build. But... I built it, and of course, I didn't have it written up in a book. I had to sit there, trial and, and error, out. and right. figure it out, which made it a lot harder. But once I did, here's a routine that is kind of my signature routine. It's the finale to my act. It has taken me all over the world. I've made a living with it, so it's worth it. Yes, it's a lot of trouble, but... I mean, the return on investment is just amazingly good. So at the same time my books came out, Gaetan Bloom's books came out, that two-volume set of Gaetans. And, and I looked, I got the set of those books, and I went through them, and I go, oh, my God. Here's the difference. I think Gaetan Bloom is a genius. And he will, he will get an idea, an original idea, very simple effect, very simple method, and in two pages, he can say, here's the effect, and here's how it works. And an hour later, you can be playing with this because you've made it up. And I'm just not that way. I, I've, in fact, I would say I'm the furthest thing from an inventor of magic. What I like to do is find a trick, an existing trick, that's a really good effect with a really good method, practical method, and, and to take that trick and say, okay, how can I make this trick um, my own? How can I disguise this trick like the Bill and Cigar? Mm -hmm. uh, how can I make it different than everybody else pulling it out of a wallet? And the coat hangers and the toilet paper. Yeah, it's, it's exactly <laughs> the same thing, though. I used to do the linking rings in my act. Everybody did the linking rings in their act. And I thought, you know, everybody knows these rings come from the magic shop. You know, they don't exist in the real world. So... I wonder what the secret to those special magician rings is. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you say, I'm going to do this exact same trick with coat hangers, well, now people, they do know what coat hangers are. They sure. all have them at home. They all know how they're made. They all know that you can't link one inside the other. Uh, and so it brings a whole new level of mystery to this thing. Uh, the toilet paper trick, it's the gypsy thread. I wanted to do the gypsy thread, but I wanted to do it on stage. So I've seen guys do it with thread, but it's thread. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a big theater, what would be better? And the answer to me was toilet paper. You can see it from the back of the balcony. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody knows it's perforated at equal increments, uh, which makes it very easy to tear into pieces. And um, so, yeah, I, I just did the gypsy thread, but with with a new object, toilet paper instead of thread, and a new method, uh, and that's something I wrote in my, my Mike Caveney's Wonders books. Um, the five different methods that I have used to perform uh, what I call magic paper. 
and, and why I loved each method and then why I eventually eliminated that method because it wasn't good or good enough and devised a new method and why that method was good but why I eliminated it eventually and came up with a new method and the fifth method is the one that I have stuck with for the past 30 years and uh, <clears throat> and there's a lot of psychology involved and it's uh, it's probably the simplest method of all but it's just the one that that makes sense and works and has all the right beats and all the right psychology built into it we're out of time mike but we always which is a dreadful shame but we always end the show with four quick fire questions are you ready no well i'm going to ask them anyway okay fire away favorite pizza topping Sausage. Favourite movie? The Shawshank Redemption. Favourite person or people that make music? Wow. Mm. You know what? I can't believe it. I'm showing my age. I'm a huge Beatles fan. I love the Beatles. I just introduced my six-year-old to the Beatles just wow. two days ago. Good for you. <laughs> you're, you're a good dad. <laughs> and finally, who would you rather fight? One massive Andy Gladwin or a hundred tiny Joshuas? Very difficult. Mm. One giant Andy or a hundred tiny Joshuas. hundred tiny Joshuas. You know, Mike Tyson is the one that said, on my best day at work, I still get punched in the face. I'm going to say a giant Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Caveney, thank you oh, so I, much. Oh, go on. I say and a giant Andy thinking I might be able to outrun him. Oh, okay. So. That's fair. Although there's a whole thing with Andy and, and running that you're unaware of. He has com very competitive running with the guys in the warehouse when he goes out to, uh, when he comes out Re to America. Mm. Wait, he's a runner? He thinks so. I didn't know that. Yeah. So next time you can challenge him. Because I understand okay. you take it quite seriously. I will. And I may get punched in the face then. <laughs> it's the only way he's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Cagney, thank you so much for taking up so much of your, giving up so much of your time. I really do appreciate it. Great talking with you, Damien. I enjoyed it. Nice talking to you too. Thank you very much.